0: To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com.
1: I think, you know, my biggest takeaway was that I've got a lot of kind of like thoughts on business, but my biggest one is like there are no technical problems, there's only people problems. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag-tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran.
0: Vertical Farming Podcast Season 2, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm positive you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. It's been a crazy, crazy 2020, and here we are in the beginning of 2021. If we thought things were going to calm down and revert back to normal, then just to timestamp this, it is January 7th, 2021, and yesterday saw one of the most bizarre occurrences in the history of this country uh, happen in Washington, D.C., and it'll be one for the history books. And just a reminder that just when you think... You know what to expect. Um, The world really throws you for a loop, so I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but uh, that's just something that's been top of mind and uh, actually had me recording this intro a bit later than I would have liked as I was uh, definitely glued to my uh, TV watching the events unfold at the Capitol. I realize this is an international show, and it's been interesting to think about what the uh, view is of people from other parts of the world. But as with everything else, the show must go on. In case you missed the last episode, I had a really good conversation with Henry Stuhl, Chief Science Officer at Bowery Farming. So if you haven't heard that episode and you're just still getting caught up, make sure you check that one out. Bowery is doing some great things in the world of vertical farming, and Henry's interview was really entertaining. Just as entertaining is this week's conversation with Nate Storey, who is also the Chief Science Officer of Plenty, Plenty is on a mission to bring fresh local produce to communities everywhere in a way that's better for the environment. In this episode, we discuss Plenty's local field-scale indoor farms, the importance of having supportive infrastructure for vertical farming, and the work Nate is doing at Plenty to promote social responsibility and better food for all. I want to take a moment to thank our episode sponsor, Ceres Greenhouse Solutions. Ceres combines smart greenhouse design with customized climate control technology to build sustainable grow environments for year-round production. They work with their customers and clients every step of the way, from helping to secure funding to providing growing data. Whether you're a commercial entrepreneur, an educator, or someone looking for a rewarding hobby, visit seriesgreenhousesolutions.com. That's C-E-R-E-S greenhousesolutions.com to get started on your greenhouse goals. As you might have guessed, we kick off with the impact COVID has had, and then I dig into what piqued Nate's interest in vertical farming and what inspired him to start his first business, Bright Agrotech. Nate speaks to mentors who have influenced his career, lessons he's learned, and why vertical farming is truly his calling. He tells the story of how he met Plenty co-founder Matt Bernard, as well as common misconceptions towards indoor agriculture. We discuss how Plenty's mission has evolved and innovated throughout the years and the importance of having a supporting infrastructure for vertical farming. Nate explains how Plenty decides on where to locate its farms and where they are focusing their growth and shares the work Plenty is doing to advance social responsibility. My curiosity leads me to ask Nate, at the end of our conversation, what exactly does a chief science officer do? This episode is also brought to you by the Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. Each week, our team member Daniel Dre scours the ends of the earth, climbs mountains, and fords rivers to bring you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming sign up today at verticalfarmingpodcast.com forward slash newsletter we had a great review come in from koji7 that's k-h-o-j-e-7 who writes this podcast has really helped me satiate my curiosity in vertical farming harry does a great job at bringing interesting guests from different areas of vertical farming and asking them the right questions to tell a great story i went on a binge and listened to multiple episodes in a single setting really helped as a resource, and I would recommend it to anyone wanting to know more about vertical farming. Thanks so much for that fantastic and inspiring review. Koji7, I truly appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Who knows? Yours might be the one I read out next. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Nate. So Nate Storey, co-founder and CSO of Plenty, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: So uh, we are wrapping up what is, by all accounts, one of the strangest, most interesting years on record (laughs) 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 in 2020. So I'm I'm wondering if you had to pick one to two words to describe the year from your perspective, what would they be?
1: One to two words. I mean, (laughs) if I could do it in sentences, I would say was a year of frenetic structural change. Mm. And I would also say it is a year for reassessing values. Interesting. And I think that those are like the two things that stand out to me. I think that's, you know, personal, it's political, it's cultural. And certainly as far as this business is concerned, it's, it's, it's about this business as well.
0: What's been the impact for you on a personal level with, with just with COVID?
1: You know, COVID has been, I think, a bit of a reckoning for the world in a lot of different spheres, but certainly in the sphere of managing long-distance supply chains and keeping things on the shelf, things that people have always taken for granted. Yeah. It has been a big year for indoor farmers. The other thing I would say is it's been a big year in that people have really started to think about their health. Right? It's it's very hard not to think about COVID and not think about it as, you know, an outcome, you know, to be overly simplistic, of a modern world where people are living in very different places and probably don't have the best possible diets. You know, when yeah. we look at the people it impacts the most, it's folks suffering from heart disease, from diabetes from high blood pressure, all of these different things that are diet related diseases. And so, you know, for plenty, I think it's, you know, going back to this idea of, you know, reaffirming our values. I think for plenty, it's been a year where we've realized more than ever, the importance of building this industry, both in terms of people's lives and in this incredibly, you know, tragic and real way, our ability to change the world for the better. So it's been a crazy year. And obviously from the business standpoint, we've been very heads down working on building the LA farm, keeping, you know, store shelves stocked, uh, which is, you know, something that we've been able to do even when, you know, local distributors were kind of, you know, impacted slowing down or completely stopped by COVID. So I think it's a year for proving out, Hey, this is a model that has legs and provides real and measurable value. And, um, something that the world needs to think pretty hard about.
0: I'd love, we're going to dig into the the plenty story. Definitely. I want to wind the clock back a little bit. It seems from the, a little bit of the research that I've done that agriculture, agronomy, crop sciences has, has been in your, your genes for quite some time. And it's, you know, part of what you studied when you were at the university of Wyoming. So I'm curious to find out when this interest started, if it was as you were entering college or even before then, if you can go go that far back and point to when this became something that was on your radar?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it started, I was was living in China. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I lived in this apartment in this rural village that overlooked a a threshing floor. Mm -hmm. And I watched the seasons as they were basically played out on that threshing floor. You know, the village women would be out there drying garlic and, you know, shucking corn and doing all of these very, like, interesting agricultural activities. And you'd have, you know, the farmers bringing in, you know, truckloads of things and dumping them back there. And over the course of living there, you know, over over the course of that year, I began to just think like, hey, this is something simple and meaningful, right? Like putting food in someone's mouth. It felt uncontroversial at the time. And I've learned since that it's very controversial, unfortunately. Like everything in life, right? People can people yeah. can make simple things complicated and controversial and, and manufacture drama around what should really be a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. But for me at that time it was kind of like this is this feels like a value, a core value. And so came back and and went to school and you know, did my bachelor's, master's, PhD in, in agroecology and agronomy and during my masters started building towers for greenhouses. And at the time, I was basically thinking about it as, how do we build equipment for smaller farmers that allow smaller farmers to compete better, to conserve their resources better? And uh, started working on this idea of building these photon traps, right? Using towers and positioning them within the greenhouse in a way that allows us to make the most of our light. And so from that, you know, kind of came these vertical towers. And I started to see the benefits of them and started to test them. And at first yields were very low, but I started to do the the calculations of yield per square foot. And I realized there were multiples higher than single plane production, even when plant health was poor. And back then when I was first getting started, you know, plant health was poor. It was a real struggle to keep these things alive in a super low weight tower. So for my PhD, I really got into the hardware design aspect. And I started to redesign towers for the environment and for the crop. And that kind of led to my first company, which really doubled down on building hardware, software, IoT devices, ed- online educational materials, that kind of thing for folks that wanted to get into this. And uh, after I th- felt like that thesis was pretty well played out for me, you know, helped to start plenty.
0: What is it in your nature that would send you to China?
1: <laughs> yeah, so it was part of basically like this organization that taught english and taught sustainable business practices Hmm. and i was kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life at the time and my father was connected with some of the folks that did this program and so yeah that's that's how i got connected to it and thought why not yeah so went over there and that was kind of what started to feed this idea that feeding people is simple and to do interesting things
0: it was so interesting because at the time you know Bright AgroTech was started in 2010. So you know, we're talking ten years ago, and a lot of the things that you're referencing even seem cutting edge nowadays. And I'm wondering who or what other companies were inspiring you at the time and what was giving you any sort of direction at that time in 2010 as you were getting Bright Agrotech off the ground.
1: Yeah, I think it was, you know, I think it was honestly more a lack than a lack of companies in the space as opposed to lots of companies. So, you know, at the time, you know, I would say inspiration, but kind of in a negative way, right? So I was playing with these different towers because, you know, starting to occupy that vertical space with, you know, these small crops started to seem like something that was worth spending time and energy investigating. And everyone had just stacked things up, right? So everyone in the space had just built these stacked towers of containers. Yeah. And I just felt like that was fundamentally the wrong approach, right? I believe that in design, great design starts with intent, right? It can't be lazy. It can't just take things that already exist and stack them up. It must be intentional from day one. And in order to build something that really does what you need it to do, when we're talking about a totally new application, a new function, Mm -hmm. you oftentimes have to start with scratch. And that's hard and it's expensive and it's grueling but it's necessary in order to build the right thing. And so for me, that was kind of the thing that drove me, right? Was seeing basically what I consider to be a lot of bad tech and a lot of tech that I felt was holding back production in three-dimensional space. And so, yeah. and also feeling like, you know, like the greenhouse industry, they've got a lot of amazing solutions for the greenhouse, Yeah. but you know, those solutions were built for that application, for that environment. There's a lot of intent that went into them, a lot of thought, a lot of, you know, kind of contextual information. And when we start to say, what does it look like to escape the plane, to break free of the constraints of single-plane agriculture, you know, we need to be willing to fundamentally rethink how we orient all of these plants in space. And uh, stacked stacked pots are not the way to do that. Spatially, it's just not. It doesn't work. So... That's what got me started on towers, right? It was more a lack of good tech and feeling like someone needs to build this thing.
0: It sounds like you're also inspired by, you mentioned this idea of great design. Can you recall like who was inspiring you or is there anyone that was serving as a a mentor at that time for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a super unsatisfying answer, but (laughs) there was really nothing that stood out, right? I mean, I would say that, you know, I've always read a lot. And I almost think it's like crafting a story, right? Like you can't, Mm. crafting a great story takes thought and practice and just kind of this process of iteration and editing. And so I would say more than like working with hardware folks or working with folks that had designed things in the space, it was more just, I guess, more of a design philosophy, Mm. right? It was an idea about what you have to do to get to the right outcome. I'll I'll be the first person to say that I was incredibly inexperienced, (laughs) but, you know, I'd had the benefit of, you know, as a kid, I did a lot of woodworking. I worked with my hands a lot. I, you know, used a lot of tools. And so prototyping and some of the early work came naturally. And then, you know, the thing that I found I was the most talented at was hiring people that were much smarter than me Mm. and somehow talking them into working with me. (laughs) Okay. So my major claim is, you know, I knew enough to get things started yeah. and then I was evidently convincing enough or found people who are patient enough to actually work with me and help build something big.
0: What would you say is your biggest takeaway from your time at Agrotech?
1: I think, you know, my biggest takeaway was that, you know, I've got a lot of kind of like thoughts on business, but my biggest one is like, there are no technical problems. There's only people problems. Mm. Right, like if the okay. laws of the universe say something is possible, if if you do your first principles analysis and you come back and say, "Hey, we're not in disagreement with you know any of the laws of thermodynamics or what have you," right, like the physics say this is possible, yeah, then really achieving it is just a function of people, right? How can you get uh, teams to work together? And the thing that I've learned over the years is you know brilliant, talented, motivated people can do just about anything, yeah, and you know. That's a good thing to keep in mind because this is a tough industry. This is a tough industry. You know, if you want to make money the easy way, this is probably not the industry for you, right? If you feel called to feed people, if you feel called to expand the size of the world, if you feel called to preserve the natural habitat, if you feel called to fundamentally expand the scope and the possibilities of human existence, you know, then come work in this industry, but I'll tell you right now, you know, those things have historically not paid as well as Wall Street. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> is it safe to say that you feel a calling for all those things?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think yeah. that's what we're building, right? Like we're building this industry not to build a more expensive version of the greenhouse. That's not the goal. We're building this industry because we believe fundamentally that what we're building here increases the size of this world, right? What would you say is the value of that? Right. What would you say is the value of, you know, expanding the surface area that people can grow food on, expanding yeah. the capacity of the world to grow without raising the Amazon, preserving habitat for orangutans while simultaneously growing more food on this planet? Like these are mm-hmm. all, you know, when we talk about habitat, when we talk about healthy diets, when we talk about pollution, when we talk about, you know, the limits of population, we're all just talking about the amount of variable land we have or don't have. We don't couch it in those terms, but that's really what we're talking about. And so, you know, what we're doing as an industry is we're building artificial land. We're growing the size of the world. And I think that that is an important way to put it because I hope that putting it that way impresses on people the importance of what we're trying to do.
0: That's really interesting. Can you tell the story of how you met Matt and, and what that was like?
1: Yeah, so I was actually still at Bright Tech. And I was at a conference at one of the Indoor AgCon conferences down in Vegas, and uh, Jack Oslin, one of the other you know original co-founders, had emailed me and said, hey, my name's Jack. I'm using your towers in a freight farm. I've got to talk with you. wasn't particularly happy with the farm, but loved the towers. I've got to talk with you. So he cornered me at this conference and, and basically said, uh, you know, we're, we want to start a production company. We want to get into the production end of things. And, you know, honestly, around that time, you know, I'd felt like the thesis for why I'd started, why I'd started Bright Agrotech had had been answered fairly well. And I was ready to ask the next question. Mm. And so they found me at the perfect time. And then Matt calls it, you know, a year of creeping commitment where I slowly kind of eased off more responsibility, handed that off at at Bright Agrotech and transitioned over to Plenty. And, uh, you know, at the time we were just We started off in a little container farm and then, you know, scaled into our facility in South San Francisco and basically built and rebuilt the farm dozens of times. Mm. Build it, answer a question, tear it down. Build it, answer a question, tear it down. And just went through this iterative process to figure out what is the architecture? What is the configuration? What are the problems we're trying to solve? What are the constraints that we either need to lift or learn to live within? And that was, you know, that was a long and exhausting process. But it's kind of it's gotten us to where we're at today, which is yeah. you know a farm that I think is going to fundamentally change the way agriculture is done.
0: When people see the scope of what you're doing, or people there's news releases about you know what people like um, the big the bigger names in the space, the the Bowery, yep. the the Air Farms, the Plenties. What do you think is a misconception that people commonly have in terms of relating to you know what the scale at with which you're doing farming? And what, if any, impact that has on traditional farming?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that people, you know, going back to this idea of storytelling, we love conflict. Like, you can't have a story without conflict, right? Man against nature, man against the gods, you know, whatever the theme is, like, there's a limited number of, but, you know, there's always conflict. A story without conflict is pretty boring. (laughs) So, you know, people like to tell the story of indoor farming like it's fundamentally in conflict with the field. And that's really a false narrative. The reality is that the field needs to produce at 100%. Greenhouses need to produce at 100%. We all need to produce at 100%. And indoor ag is our means of building on top of the production that already exists, right? Like we don't want production to go down. We need to double to triple the amount of fresh fruits and vegetables in the world just to feed Mm. people, you know, the right amount of fresh fruits and vegetables that diet doctors recommend for your diet, right? So like people are woefully deficient when it comes to fresh fruits and vegetables already. We're not talking about a world where everyone's well fed <laughs> yeah, yeah so yeah. you know all of that to say we're building on top of that supply that supply needs to exist needs to continue but we also know that that supply is limited both yeah. in the field and in greenhouses and so you know we view what we're building as a means to s- supplement that supply that hasn't existed before and ultimately I think it's the key to a longer happier human life on this planet and uh, and hopefully a happier environment as well
0: If I were to ask Matt what he saw in you or in that partnership uh, that got him excited about working with you, what do you think he would say?
1: I think he would say, I've actually heard him answer this question, so this is kind of cheating, (laughs) but I I think he would say that, you know, the reason that he was attracted to me was because I was technical and pragmatic, so uh, I'd had enough business background and exposure, you know, bootstrapping Bright Agrotech in a couple of years from nothing to several million bucks in in revenue, you know, and so I I would say that, you know, he saw someone who had some business experience, was pragmatic about, you know, the realities of business, but also technical and thinking very hard about, you know, architecture and what needs to be true for this industry to be a real thing. So I think that that's what attracted him to me. And, uh, you know, in Matt, I saw someone who could lead a business, raise a lot of money and sell the vision Uh, for what this could be, like pretty much no one else at that time, right? There's no one else in the space that was really selling it the way Matt was. Although, you know, if you heard Matt give a webinar or present to someone several months later, there were a lot of competitors using the same messaging, right? So, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery, I guess. But, (laughs) you know, he was just phenomenal at that. And so that was kind of the basis for that relationship.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how if anything, the mission has changed when you started, or for instance, when Plenty started in 2013 and how the industry has changed now and any of the, the, the changes that Plenty has had to make to either evolve, innovate on their own in light of you know, the climate and how the industry has evolved?
1: Yeah, I mean, the industry has both changed a lot and hardly changed at all, right? I think the mission, the vision, the values of most of the players in this space yeah. are the same. I think what everyone has realized is this this problem is much more complicated than anyone thought, right? So to hear everyone talk, you know, like five years ago everyone was like, we're gonna build a hundred farms in two years and you know, do X, Y, and Z. And the reality is like this is an incredibly complex problem set. You're combining, you know, engineering, you're combining biology, you're combining data science, you're combining all of these disciplines, construction management, sustainable operations, you have all of these disciplines that are a challenge in and of themselves, you know, to be excellent at, and you're pulling them together and making them work together in a way that's particularly, you know, complicated. And so, you know, the thing that I would say is like, I think that the industry has matured in its understanding of the problem in the last several years. And that is the biggest thing that we've all had had the time to do. Mm -hmm. I think that our understanding of the problems that we're solving has deepened. So, I mean, I think that that is that's a pretty exciting thing because, you know, I'll tell you, it has helped us to realize what the real constraints on growth are. It's also helped us realize that growth is virtually unconstrained when we look to the future, right? So when we look at the number of crops that will ultimately move indoors, I think, you know, us today, you know, would be surprised. You know, we would be surprised by that, by what's going to happen in the future. So, so I don't know, that sounds like a pretty incoherent answer to your question, but you know, in short, you know, I think we've grown up, we've matured a lot. Yeah. But I don't think that the fire has died. And the other thing that I would say has changed is that the world has real begun to realize that this is a necessity. We've transitioned from from if to when, right? And that is a yeah. big transition. Yeah. That is a big transition. It's a big transition for, you know, bringing in financing. It's a big it's a big transition for customer consumer awareness, right? It's a big transition for a lot of things. And even for historical industries, you know, greenhouse industry, the field, academic institutions that have, you know, been one of, you know, leading, I guess, research centers supporting those industries. A lot of eyes have started to, to turn to what is happening in indoor egg, as they should. Yeah. And I think that that's very exciting, both from a, a resourcing standpoint, as well as well as well as helping the world to realize that we are necessary because I think that that has been a question until recently.
0: How important is the supporting infrastructure? We touched a little bit about the supply chain to support vertical farming as it existed in 2010, as it existed when the state it was in, when plenty got started, what it's like now. What are your thoughts about how robust it is to support? Getting the food to people's ultimate destination of the plates and you know how, what part Plenty is playing in that?
1: Well, I think it's more fragile than we thought, right? I mean, I think yeah. the thing about having things magically show up on retail shelves for decades without interruption is you start to take for granted the complexity and the difficulty of making those things show up on the shelf. And you take for granted the stability that allows those supply chains to function. So I think, you know, one thing that has happened this year is is people have realized maybe I take that for granted, maybe that isn't a given, maybe it isn't a sure thing, maybe the world is a little less certain than I thought. And I think that that is actually an important realization because there's been a few of us that have been screaming it for a very long time, right? Moving fresh food across the world thousands of miles is may not be the smartest thing. Concentrating people, you know, in these you know population centers that are farther and farther away from the centers of production that's just a fundamental physics concern. (laughs) like you are not in the same place. It takes more energy to get it there. More things can go wrong. You know, this just does not seem like wisdom. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And that doesn't mean it's not a solvable problem, but that does say this non-traditional concentration of population, this non-traditional way of putting people in places, consuming the things we consume without replacing kind of the traditional system of getting those things to those people seems to be a recipe for disaster. So I think this has been an interesting exercise for us. You know, we had distribution center go down due Mm -hmm. to COVID and plenty products were the only ones on the shelf. And that's, you know, that was an interesting thing. There was no other fresh produce being distributed to several of these stores. And we were able to put produce on the shelf because we're practically next door, right? It's a fundamentally different problem for us to solve. So, I think that that's true for a lot of local ag, yeah. and I think that that excites me about this idea of local agriculture. You know, it builds a more resilient supply chain. Our food system gets safer and better for people when we can do that. And you know, frankly, this is to some degree a simple feedback problem. You know, I believe that most business problems are basically just feedback problems. And the further away you get from your customer, mm-hmm. the less you can understand their needs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Businesses are built on you know an understanding of the customer needs and building products that meet those needs. That's very fundamental. And as we separate ourselves further and further from consumers, as we uh, constrain the products that we can create through these complex supply chains, through all of this processing, through all of this distribution, you know, it can become a challenge to stay in touch with what people want and what people need. But when you're located next door, not only does it simplify that you know, chain, all these chains of handoffs, all these points where something can go wrong, But it also allows us to understand our customer, their lives, their needs, what they love, what they hate, much, much better. And I think that that makes us better as a company. It lets us meet their needs. You know, we can build personal relationships with our customers. That is a dream. It is a dream to know what people love and uh, what they hate and what they fear and what they hope for and understand how you can tailor your product to meet people where they're at.
0: How does Plenty think about where to place these farms? Obviously, there's a a lot of buzz around the Tigris farm. And I'm wondering internally how the team thinks about where it makes sense to have a a farm location.
1: Yeah, I mean, in all humility, we're still learning that. You know, like there are very few lessons that I'm going to stand on a soapbox and say, hey, you know, we have learned how to do this and we are perfect. What I will say is, wow, have we learned some valuable things about that. And, you know, there are massive opportunities that flow from where you place your farm. And it really kind of just depends on the priority of your values and kind of the unique geographical economics, Mm -hmm. right, of that farm. And so, you know, I think, you know, for us, putting our first farm in Compton was a big decision, right? And the values that, that kind of rose to the surface in that conversation where, you know, the first farm or two that you build are as much a statement as they are a business, right? And it's our job to tell the world who we are, who we want to be. And, you know, if you think about putting a farm in LA, you know, it's one of basically two mega cities that we have in the United States. Yeah. You know, we've got the New York metro, you know, metro area, we've got, you know, the LA metro area. And you know, I think that for us, there were a number of things. One, you know, we, we made the economics work, you know, but also from a cultural, from a value standpoint, you know, Compton was about saying, hey, we can move agriculture into the heart of the city, mm-hmm. right? Like we can put it wherever we want, places where agriculture has never been possible before. You know, we're moving into Compton and there's all sorts of interesting things about Compton in particular. You know, Compton used to be agricultural land. Hmm. Compton has this very rich agricultural history and that just felt like a really cool completion of this circle, right? Like bringing agriculture back to Compton, yeah. uh, that's cool. It's a food desert, right? And so when we think about what this problem solves for the world or what this solution solves for the world, you know, indoor farming, what it can mean to people, that is a pretty powerful statement, right? We're going to put our farm, this production center in the middle of a food desert. And that's something that I care a lot about, right? I think it's crazy that we live, uh, that we still have food deserts today. Yeah. So for us, you know, is a lot of those things, you know, LA is a cultural center of the country in a lot of ways. And so being able to put a farm in LA, you know, it's meaningful just from a finding folks that will partner with us to help share this story, right? That will espouse our values, that will engage with the rest of the country and help us explain not just, you know why we exist, but why it's important that more companies like ours exist, that more farms exist, that we grow this this form of agriculture.
0: You mentioned this idea of, of partnering as well. And in October, you partnered with, or the announcement was made that you were partnering with Driscoll's, which is probably one of the most well-known names when it comes to strawberries yeah and i'm wondering what you can talk about in terms of how that came together because it's interesting because it's sort of that mix of the old school and the new school
1: <laughs> yeah you know driscoll's was one of kind of the two big commercial deals we did this year albertson's yeah. and driscoll's were yeah. you know the two agreements that we you know that we signed this year and uh, driscoll's you know really arose from you know our two different companies having needs that we thought the other could meet, right? Mm -hmm. And for Driscoll's, that was, you know, access to technology that helps them scale anywhere in the world, even to places that don't have the environment for growing strawberries.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, also, you know, thinking about what it looks like to produce a premium strawberry year round. You know, strawberries are really at peak flavor for, you know, they're seasonal. There's a period of time where they're at their best, yeah. Simply because the environmental conditions are ideal, they align with kind of, you know, the age of the plant and you could say like the the stage in the life cycle or the, of that plant, you know, and and you get this product out that's just awesome, it's fantastic, and then you know outside of that window of perfect weather, it's harder and harder to get berries that are that perfect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when we think about indoor egg, we can reproduce any conditions day in day out, year over year over year, and so you know, for them, that was an opportunity to partner with someone that could help them basically bring the perfect berry to market every single day, right? So that's what excited them. That excites us too, right? Like the mm-hmm. the incredible flavors that you get from strawberries. Yeah, This is a crop that people really have to experience fresh. They really have to experience it, you know, at peak flavor. And uh, the idea of being able to do that, you know, with someone like Driscoll's who has All of this experience, all of this deep knowledge of the crop, you know, crop physiologists that are just specialized in strawberries their entire life, you know, the best genetics in the industry, and then, you know, this incredible market presence combined with the ambition to grow, right? The ambition to be bigger and more, you know, all over the world, to take strawberries to people who've never had them before. You know, I think that the scope of that ambition and excitement, you know, met our ambition and excitement about putting vertical farms all over the world. So all of that to say, you know, like we were we were well matched in terms of how we complemented each other, and uh, we're really excited to partner with them.
0: The company is over a hundred years old, I believe, right?
1: Yeah, they are. They've got yeah. they've got an incredible history. Yeah, an incredible history.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because this concept of uh, growing a crop like strawberries in a place that you would think it wouldn't be possible. I spoke to Henry Gordon Smith in an earlier episode, and it was reminded of the work they're doing in Dubai, or he was talking about some of the work that was happening in Dubai. And, and I think strawberries was the crop of choice there as well.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a high value crop. Yeah, It's a crop that pretty much everyone in the world likes to eat, yeah. but very few people in the world have access to in a form that's you know perfect. So
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the work that Plenty does in terms of social responsibility? I know that there was a partnership with Project Open Hand that was announced earlier in the year as well.
1: Yeah, you know, we've worked with Project Open Hand. You know, we produce a lot of product and uh, we're producing more every day. So like the cool thing is, you know, we're on a technology cost curve. With our costs drop, our production goes up, right? And so being able to partner with folks like Project Open Hand, it's both a great place for us to take, you know, product that isn't spoken for in the market. Mm-hmm. And you know in the course of kind of doing that, as we've gotten the farm going, it's kind of become something that that we've realized is really important. You know, especially for folks like Project Open Hand, they work with a lot of folks that are say like immune compromised or or have things have conditions that fresh vegetables in particular are yeah. very beneficial for. So, you know, we've worked with them, they've been just a, a dream to work with. And then you know as we start to expand our farms, you know, we think very hard about where we put these farms, where we're putting these jobs. And then then we engage kind of with those local communities. So the idea is, you know, if we think about ourselves as like the next phase of agriculture, it's our job to start raising up kids, even if they're like five years old, right? Start exposing them to the concepts, the ideas, the things that will turn them into people who later in life are excited about working in plenty farms, excited about becoming Mm. farmers. And, uh, you know, so that that might be, you know, Compton schools, you know, working with kids there or, you know, kind of wherever we're placing our future farms, you know, engaging with those schools and those communities and then making sure that those communities that we're placing farms in are getting access to the food we produce. Right. So it would be a travesty if we built farms in food deserts without solving the food desert problem. Yeah. Now, that's an oversimplification of the food desert problem, right? It is a complex problem. We can't just solve it on the supply side, but, you know, we can help to solve it and we can take steps towards solving it that are meaningful.
0: Is that important for you in terms of standing in the community and and like the long lasting impression that plenty will leave in the communities that it has relationships with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we view this through a very long term lens, You know, like we can't be a five-year business. You know, we're building 20-year farms, at least 20-year farms. And probably, you know, we're just retrofitting and changing things out over time. These are farms that will probably stand for 50 years, 60 years. And so when you think about the life cycle of a farm, that's, you know, an entire generation or two generations of people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think about this as agricultural infrastructure. In the same way, you might think about handing down a farm from one generation to the next, you know, we have to think about this in, in similar ways, right? We've got to think about this. What, what does the Compton farm look like in 60 years, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean we're designing a 60-year farm today, but that is to say, we're still going to be around in 60 years. We're still going to be necessary in 60 years, more necessary than ever. And so we have to take a long-term focus on how we engage with communities and pull people into this new kind of agriculture.
0: Yeah, it feels like there's going to be a resurgence or interest in agriculture that has probably been missing in this country yeah. for many, many decades. And I was—I had a conversation recently with uh, John Purcell of Unfold yeah. and he, when he mentioned, you know, when his daughter found out he's in vertical farming, she's like, oh, you're in the cool, <laughs> the cool niche now. <laughs> so it's cool. You have a cool job. So it feels like it's getting more attention now.
1: Yeah, it is. And it should, you know, like, Farming for a long time has been, I don't know, not necessarily something that people aspire to, right? Yeah. And it's really kind of just recently that people started to think, oh, farming might be pretty cool. Producing food might be pretty neat. And so I'm encouraged that people are interested in it. And I think that it is, it is a really great career to have, right? Like it's honest, it's straightforward work and it creates very tangible value. And in a world that is full of intangible value, and theoretical value, and a lot of ones and zeros, Yeah, you know, creating tangible value can be something that's really rewarding. So hopefully we see a lot of people come running, because we're going to need a lot of people to come running in order to do this.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your role as chief, I'm assuming the S is for science, yeah, that's right? right? Chief science officer. <laughs> what are some of the things that you're working on that you can speak to that have you excited on the science side?
1: Yeah. I mean, on the science side, you know, at any given time, we have a number of different efforts. The primary thing that we're engaged in is product design and optimization. So what are the next products that we're going to put in market and how do we make those things yield as well as possible within the quality spec that we design them to? So that's actually a really hard challenge. And, you know, we harvest our crops as kind of baby greens. So they're not, you know, they haven't traveled very far up the, uh, like growth rate curve, there's still, you know, I guess, building momentum when it comes to like metabolism and growth. And so, you know, we're harvesting them when they're little babies and there's a lot that goes into making sure we can take a little baby crop like that and make it yield numbers that are economical. So, you know, there's a science team in Laramie, Laramie, Wyoming, that's where the science team is. and so we've got uh, dozens of walk-in growth chambers, and all of those are testing different treatments, lighting treatments, temperature treatments, mm. you know, kind of all of the different environmental factors that we manipulate to drive yield. And so, you know, that's what the team does a lot of, quantifying those, screening new genetics. You know, we screened over 1,400 different crops and cultivars to kind of oh. come up with this list of cultivars that, that we're using today or working on. We work hard to make sure the systems do what we think they'll do. So scale as a treatment is very hard to predict. All sorts of things start to go wrong. The bigger things get, basically, is one way yeah. to put it, right? Yeah, so yeah. the larger the system, the more ways there are for it to fail. And so it's our job to help anticipate those things and test all of those different crops at scale. And then we look at new crops altogether. So another thing we do is say, okay, what is the next thing? So for instance, strawberries. You know, is something that the team is running on, working very closely with gistels to look at a lot of different genetics and figure out what are the best crops for these systems and what are the best ways to grow these crops in these systems. You know, and then internally we're working on things like tomatoes and kind of these future crops, breeding them, taming them, if you will, to go into these systems. It's really an awesome job. You know, we get to re architect agriculture and it's mm. been a while since anyone's done that. So yeah. for me, it's, it's pretty fun because we get to go in and say, hey, what needs to be true to make this thing a big deal, right? What needs to be true to blow, say, historical production out of the water? So for something like greens, you know, we're setting targets and we're saying, how do we grow half a kilogram or a kilogram per square meter per day, right? These growth rates that are just mm. unheard of, unmatched yeah. in the industry, and we've got to go out and pull them down. How do we grow, you know... 900 to 1200 kilograms of tomatoes in a square meter in a year, right? Wow. And those are the kind of things like the greenhouse guys just roll their eyes when they hear that, oh, whatever, this guy's full of it, right? <laughs> but those are the kinds of years yields yeah. that we're pulling down, right? So yeah. it's the kind of thing where we get challenged with practically impossible challenges. And then we've got to get creative and use science and use testing and work with engineers and work with other parts of the business that can do things that scientists can't do on their own to make something true that has never been true before. We get to remake the world in our own way. So I think that is a pretty fantastic job.
0: Sounds like a lot of fun as well.
1: It is, you know, it's <laughs> it's challenging. There, yeah. You know, like I said, there's no technical problems, there's just people problems. Yeah. You know, so the people aspect of it, getting a lot of, you know, diverse people to work together, coming at it from lots of different backgrounds. You know, those people don't typically work well together. And so it's our job to figure out, How do you get people who are speaking different languages from a technical standpoint or from a business standpoint to all land on the same page and be effective with each other? And, uh, you know, that's a really hard thing to do. Most companies never succeed at it.
0: The other thing that I think is fascinating is what's happening in tandem is all the components that are required for this to succeed include things like improving efficiency of LEDs. Data processing power, number crunching, uh, data science—all these also need to be happening and are increasing and are improving in of themselves. And so, is that something that you the company watches and is is keeping tabs of? Because as those things improve, your ability to do what you're doing improves as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we are—it's impossible for people to understand our business without understanding cost curves, right? So, technology mm-hmm. cost curves are at the heart of our model. And this is, cost curves are hard to understand, period, let alone if you come from an agricultural background, because cost curves really don't exist in agriculture. Mm. You know, this is an industry that has been mature, greenhouse, field, you name it. We've been mature for a long time. There aren't a whole lot of areas where you know your costs are going to be lower next year than they were this year, right? So, you know, what we're doing is we're saying, you know, we're building a a business here around cost curves, like LEDs, processing, power, data storage you know deployed ai sensor technology all of these different component technologies right where next year they're going to be half the price and twice the output right all of our ingredients are going to be half the price and twice the output next year yeah. on the technology side and then you know one thing that plenty has done that almost no one else in the space has done is we have built a massive engineering and r&d t- team to take all of those component technologies package them with our own internal developed technologies We're not just buying things that exist and slapping them together. Again, like going back to the beginning of our conversation around intentional design. Like we are building our own internal cost curves, which drive our costs down and our output out up year on year on year. And so, you know, at the core of everything we do is are those component cost curves and the cost curve we've built internally, which allows us to do more with less every single year, grow more crops, grow them less expensively, feed more people more affordable prices into the foreseeable future. So, we spent a lot of time looking at tech, building our own tech, combining technologies, figuring out what matters and what doesn't, and ultimately, you know, you see it in our yields, you see it in the farm itself. And uh, I don't know if you've seen pictures, but we have a fundamentally different architecture from anyone else in the space. Yeah. That came out of, you know, some very basic math, like what needs to be true to drive costs down and output up. And so, you know, we've we've picked a unique technology path, but it is really paying off.
0: It's interesting you mentioned path, because as we were talking through that, I go back to my project management days and the idea of critical path items. So I'm wondering, is there anything that when you think about the whole chain of events that need to happen for you to do what you need to do on a daily basis and outside forces that, is there something in there that you would probably consider maybe one of the weaker links and something to keep an eye on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we think about this industry and what, can hold it back, what will hold it back, it's ultimately going to be access to capital. You know, the Hmm. technology is there. You know, the genetics, for the most part, are already there. Uh, That's another amazing thing, right? People don't realize that, you know, (laughs) hundreds of years of agriculture has delivered unto us, you know, some fantastic genetics. And that doesn't mean it's being used in the field today, but it exists. And, you know, with proper screening, uh, you can pull those genetics into your system and get the most out of them. So we've got technology, we've got genetics, we've got all of these components. We have, you know, great business people, great scientists, great engineers. We have all of these different, you know, resources, but farms are expensive. At least farms that, meet, that matter are expensive. I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, really tiny farms that have virtually no impact on global food supply, those are less expensive. But if you're really looking to impact, you know, you've got to build big farms and you got to build a lot of them. And, you know, we're ultimately talking about deploying many hundreds of billions of dollars of capital to trillions of dollars of capital to go out and build capacity equal to double today's for fresh fruits and vegetables. So, you know, we're talking about a massive industry and really, you know, when you look at how that capital needs to be deployed over the next 20, 30, 50 years, you know, having access to it, finding capital that's looking for that kind of a home that risk profile, understands the business, you know, it's going to be the hard part. But I'll tell you, once we've got a couple of farms up, I think that that gets a lot easier. That's more of a, a thing right now today. And then I see very few hurdles to actually scaling this around the world.
0: Is it safe to say you have some breathing room now with the $140 million raised?
1: Yeah. You know that. Completing that round is great. You know, 2020 has yeah. been kind of a nutso year. And so, you know, <laughs> pulling down a round in that chaos, you know, is yeah. definitely lets us breathe a sigh of relief. So
0: Maybe as a result of the chaos, <laughs> people s- saw what's needed and where, you know, the gaps are and, and really what's yeah. the opportunity.
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the problems that, that are going to afflict us for the next 50 years are becoming more perceptible. Right, you know, they're becoming more acute. They're becoming something that people are starting to accept now. You know, I don't think there aren't yeah. a whole lot of folks left that deny climate change is happening. Mm-hmm. So as we start to think about, you know, what does a fundamentally different world look like for agriculture, it really makes you know industries like ours stand out as kind of the not the antidote, but certainly the insurance policy. Yeah, and uh, you know, that's kind of a dark and dystopic take. On the importance of the industry on the lighter side you know like there's just a lot more people and there's going to be a lot more people in ten yeah. years in 20 years
0: yeah. yeah and
1: all of those people need to eat fruits and vegetables and you know what we've used up every last acre where it's economical today we've used up every hmm. last acre and every drop of water is spoken for and so in a world where we don't have more acres or we don't have more water where we don't have the ability to just magically you know Produce land, or if, if we do produce land, it comes at the cost of the environment. Indoor farming is what's left. You know, this is what we have as far as a means to manufacture land. So I think it's it lands on our shoulders to go out into the world, manufacture as much land as possible, conserve as much water as possible, and put food on people's plates.
0: What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently?
1: Oh, oh, they're tough questions all the time. I mean, this is a hard business. You know, like I have to, you know, get myself pretty psyched on a regular basis to just keep this up, right? To keep the schedule. And I've been doing it, you know, I've been in this space now for about 15 years, you know, bright was a decade ago and it's exhausting, right? So I'm constantly asking myself if, you know, is this the best use of my time? And the answer always comes back. Yeah. For now, for today, yes, this is it. And uh, is this meaningful work? Are we really solving problems? And the answer keeps coming back. Yes. It's more yeses than ever before, honestly. I think, you know, we constantly have to evaluate our structure. You know, the business is evolving and changing. The industry is evolving and changing. We're moving from R&D into an industry that has to deploy and operate. So we're moving from design. We're moving from optimization to deployments and operations. And so there are a lot of really hard questions around, are we set up? for that right now like what do we need to change what needs to be true for us to be successful tomorrow and just like you know a person grows a plant grows businesses grow too and you know at different points in a plant's life it will allocate carbon to shoots or to roots or to other things you know as a business you're trying to allocate you know your capital your time your people to the things that matter and there are a lot of really hard questions that you have to ask to make sure that you're doing that on a regular basis. So there's no shortage to the hard questions. Uh, (laughs) There's very few things that that I can talk about that don't have very hard elements to them that we need to question.
0: Sure. But
1: I think, you know, the great thing about being in the industry is we have more answers than people outside of this industry have around what it's going to be and what it can be and what it will be to the world. And so that's great you know, those moments of self-doubt, yeah. you have that to fall back on.
0: As we wrap up, just a lighthearted note, given the complexity of the questions you're answering sometimes, what's something you do to as a hobby or, or something to help take your mind off things?
1: Uh, that's a good question. It kind of depends on the season. Most of the time, uh, just spending time with my kids, you know, pretty boring. Okay. But, you know, I've got my house is here in Laramie. And so, you know, like one thing that I do is I plant a lot of trees during the spring and the summer. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of okay. a bit of uh, you know, a release valve for me. So I've got my own little carbon offset program going internal to the story house. And so I calculate my carbon footprint and then try to, <laughs> try to cover it with tree planting and, and then track my carbon sequestration. And, and that's kind of like my, my fun little, uh, you know, spring and summer project. And <laughs> then in the falls, I just spend a lot of time outside in the winter too, you know, just walking around.
0: Yeah definitely sounds energizing and and relaxing as well. Related to tree planting, my partner just put me on to a a Chrome plugin called Ecosia. I've heard of that. E-C-O-S-I-A. And it's it's called the search engine that plants trees. And so (laughs) I think the more you use it, the more uh, they actually plant trees. Uh, So, I'm not sure if you had heard about that.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I've heard about it. I've tried using it once or twice. Maybe I should try using it again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Nate, I want to Thank you for taking the time. Ran a little bit off over the hour, but it's been a fascinating to hear the story, specifically your journey. And it's clear that this has been something that's been a passion for you. Going back to your your days in in China, and and I don't know if you knew at the time what you were seeing there would spark an interest that would lead to where you currently are and the work that you're doing at Plenty. But it's clear that there's a, a big problem that needs to be solved. It's clear that the folks at Plenty are are well aware of it and are doing are playing an important role in alignment with the mission of you know improving the lives of the planet and, and the people on it. So I want to thank you for for sharing that story and, and just really excited to see what's in store at Plenty and you know be following the journey.
1: Yeah, appreciate that. It's been great talking to you. Sorry I couldn't get my video to work. <laughs>
0: No, no worries. And so uh, plenty.ag for folks to learn more. Any other things coming up that you want folks to be aware of?
1: No, I think, you know, check out the website and and stay tuned. You know, we're going to start sharing more information about Compton and kind of what comes after Mm. here over the next year. And, uh, you know, we're excited to be here doing this. And hopefully other people are excited to be alive right now too, on the cusp of this new industry. So
0: and hopefully when the conferences pick up again, I'd love to connect and, and, and meet in person. That'd be nice. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. I'd love that too. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Nate. Have a great night. You too. Thanks again to Nate for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Don't forget to sign up for our vertical farming newsletter at verticalfarmingpodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Ceres is creating sustainable, growing environments by combining smart design, innovative technology, and dynamic partnerships. Learn more at seriesgs.com. That's CeresGS.com. That's C-E-R-E-S-G-S dot Tune in next week for my conversation with Mark Plink, the founder of Ceres Greenhouse Solutions himself. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes like we did at the beginning of this one. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health.
1: Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com.
0: There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.